0: Our two-in-one winter fundraiser is coming to a close, so now is the time to help put us over the top. Check out the campaign using the big banner right on the homepage at bestofleft.com, or click the link in the show notes right on your listening device. If 60 more donors were to come forward with an average donation based on what we've already been receiving, we would hit our goal. So if you can be one of those people, Please don't hesitate to check in. And now, welcome to this episode of the award winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall examine the accusations against Aziz Ansari, not for the story itself, but as a lens through which to see and understand some of the more nuanced aspects of the Me Too movement. We will make our way through understanding the backlash to the Me Too movement that has arrived right on schedule, be reminded of the prevalence of sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace, and use all of that as a launchpad into some of the speeches from last weekend's one-year anniversary Women's March. Then stick around to the very end, where I will explain why it makes perfect sense to be optimistic about the future of gerrymandering and why it's wrong to say that people are complex- three-dimensional characters as many so often like to claim our clips today come from backtalk from bitch media full frontal with samantha b on the media off kilter democracy now and sojourner truth radio
1: Grace met Aziz Ansari at a party. Uh, they made a date to hang out in New York. They went out to dinner. Um, they went back to his apartment. And um, once they were in his apartment, he asked, he, set up situations in which it was obvious that his intentions were to have sex. He took off his clothes. He tried to take off her clothes. He was moving his hand to her genitals. He was touching her. Uh, And all the while, the woman, Grace, was giving him verbal and nonverbal cues that she didn't want to continue, that she didn't want to engage in sexual activity. So she moved his hands away. She physically got up and moved away from him. She said, like, hey, can we stop and chill? Hey, can we, like, Just like, not right now, maybe another time. So she was giving indications, you know, both in her, with her body language and her action and her words that she wasn't interested in continuing. And Aziz Ansari essentially didn't stop, um, trying to create a sexual situation. So even when she said like, hey, let's just stop and like chill out for a second, he'd say, oh, sure, sure, sure. And then he would try to make her uh, perform oral sex on him or he would go back to touching her in a sexual way. Um Essentially – uh, ignoring, refusing to respect and listen to, uh, her wishes, both her, her, you know, her clear nonverbal communication and her verbal communication. And there has been a lot of backlash to this piece, um, in published at Babe, um, for lots of different reasons. Um, some of the backlash has been around the reporting of the piece, um, essentially, uh, some, Prominent journalists have been making the argument that, uh, you know, in the New York Times Me Too reporting or the New Yorker Me Too reporting that's going on, that's so important. One of the reasons why these cases and these stories are so impactful is the amount of like meticulous research and reporting that goes into uh, those kinds of articles. And um, journalists have been saying that it's clear that Babe didn't do that kind of vetting. For instance, they didn't um, allow Aziz Ansari more than five hours to respond to the piece. Um, there's some wording in the piece that's sort of like a mix between like, is this like is this, uh, like a nonfiction, like personal essay? Is this a reported piece? Is this an interview? There is like some sort of haziness around there. Um, and so like that, that kind of backlash, I think makes a lot of sense because it's so important for people to know, like, what goes into journalism, especially in this era where people think journalism is just, you know, lies and garbage. Um, but there have been a- some other backlash that I think is, uh, <laughs> off the wall, I guess. Um, specifically, um, I'll start with um, Bari Weiss uh, at the New York Times. Um, some of these people have actually, some of these people that I'm going to accuse of being bad backlashers have actually written more than once about this particular story. But um, over at the New York Times, Bari Weiss wrote a piece. Its headline is, Aziz Ansari is guilty of not being a mind reader. And I'm just going to read um, her starting paragraph of that piece. I'm apparently the victim of sexual assault. And if you're a sexually active woman in the 21st century, chances are that you are too. That's what I learned from the expose, and expose is in quotes, like allegedly an expose, of Aziz Ansari published last weekend by the feminist website Babe. Arguably the worst thing that has happened to the Me Too movement since it began in October. It transforms what ought to be a movement for women's empowerment into an emblem for female helplessness. And that's really the theme of of these other pieces um, Andrew Sullivan over at New York Magazine, even Margaret Atwood has written a piece about uh, how she thinks backlash. Has, or sorry, how she thinks Me Too has gone too far. Caitlin Flanagan over at The Atlantic has written two pieces about Aziz Ansari specifically. And if I can sort of summarize their points. It's victim blaming. It's, uh, why didn't this woman leave this situation? Why didn't she get up? Why didn't she call her own cab? Why didn't she put her own clothes on? If you're in a, if you go home with a, uh, with a man to his apartment, obviously he thinks he wants to have sex with you. Don't be in that situation if you don't want to have sex. You know, like over and over these framings of what happened that put the onus and the responsibility on the, enc- about, on the encounter on the woman as if it is her responsibility to make sure that that she isn't, you know, preyed upon um, by another person. Essentially, the argument again and again is, like, if you like, don't make yourself a victim, which is exactly like what Bari Weiss says at the very end of her piece, it, uh, you know, this should be about women's empowerment, but actually it's about female helplessness. I hate using
2: the word, like, sacrifice, but... Like in this instance, like it could be a, a time where like he had to, like the story had to be about him so that we could have larger conversations about like rape culture, about like coercion. Um, and I think the other reason why the story was like um, became such a big deal is because so many women and so many people read that story and were like, I've been in that room with that guy. You know, it wasn't fucking Aziz I'm sorry. It was like my ex partner, or it was just this guy I hooked up with, um, or it was like you know um, my my friend's friend that I like hung out with one night. We've like many of us have been in that room and have been in that situation, and I think that like we just haven't like openly talked about um, what does like true and and like firm consent look like versus coercion, and 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 it's it's maybe it's shitty that like yeah sure the things that Aziz did in his apartment are not like um criminal liabilities or whatever but they like kind of elucidate a larger problem with like our not I I don't want to say larger problem with our hookup culture but like a larger problem with like how we treat each other when we talk about consent um and I think that like if this is what it takes to like really start that conversation um then like i'm sorry if like aziz and sari's books don't sell as much anymore for like the time (laughs) for the time being because like historically if we if we know anything like oftentimes like men are able to like like Jump right back up from these situations. They just have to like chill for a minute. I mean, for fuck's sake, isn't like Bill Cosby doing a comedy special? I th- I read something about how he got signed on to do a comedy special soon. Like, are oh. you for serious? You know, so I I don't feel sorry for Aziz Ansari for Aziz Ansari in this situation because like he already made a ton of money off of this, like off of um, the type of sentiment that I built Me Too into the movement that it is.
1: And I think, Amy, the point that you're making about like our ideas around relationships or like how to engage in sexual behavior, you know, I think that's it's so important. Like you and I are like obsessed with pop culture. But I, I mean, even for people who aren't obsessed with pop culture, you know, just like, you know, just like, in your brain just think about like the kinds of representations you've seen in which like men or boys want to have sex and maybe uh, a woman or a young girl doesn't want to have sex. Um, like I've been thinking all this time I've been thinking about the song from Greece, Summer Lovin'. Um, Amy you know Greece?
2: <laughs> yes, yes. Okay good. Summer Lovin', I love you so much. I don't know, this. Okay, I don't know the Okay but here's words. the part. I just, I just know the melody. The
1: part that I remember is when all the dudes are hanging out at the bleachers and they're all like tell me more tell me more did you get very far but then here's what i remember specifically tell me more tell me more did she put up a fight and there are so many times in pop culture where like male sexuality or like the relationship between men and women the di- like a sexual dynamic between uh men and women is framed as like oh women don't want to have sex women want to be convinced or, co- or coerced to have sex in order to have sex she you'll know, she'll put up a fight but probably you'll be able to overcome that and then like she'll be glad that you guys did have sex or maybe she won't be glad but who cares because like the the dynamic is uh a woman says no and I'm man convinces her to say yes and like that's so troubling and it's i mean greece is just like the most egregious example that i have in my head but there are no all- we see it we
2: see it all the exactly. time it's like, everywhere like, you, it's you, everywhere you, you just you just watch the i mean like game of thrones is like a, probably a bad example because there's so much sexualized viol- violence in it but like khaleesi like is raped by call drago at the beginning and then she ends up like falling in love with right, him right right but like but But the thing about that situation is that it's not unique to Game of Thrones. We literally see it all the time. Like a woman being like, oh, no. Like, it just happened. I was watching um one of the Indiana Jones movies. Oh, no. It's like, oh, don't kiss me. And all of a sudden, she's like, fucking kiss me. You know, it's like, it's just one of those things where, like, that's just how I think we've been socialized to think. I mean, for young, I think for young men to think that's how women are are like romanced, you know, you have to like convinced slash coercer and like her first no is like not a real no and then maybe to an extent like young women have been socialized to think that i have to say no first but i don't mean it but i i really think that like uh as we like move on in time like often when young women say no we fucking mean it but like men are not are still not hearing that um and that's the troubling part and i think that like uh in the situation like this, it's like this is like starting a conversation. That I think is like so important to have. This
1: is totally reminding me of what happened at Yale. Uh, in case in case anyone but like doesn't believe us that this this attitude is just like out there everywhere. It's everywhere. It's at Yale. Uh, there was a frat that got banned because they were marching around Yale's campus chanting. And this is disgusting. So I'm so sorry. Uh, chanting no means yes. Yes means anal. And that's a real thing wow that's that's a real thing and so yeah just, just think about that that like that's the way so many people are reared in this culture this idea that like no does not mean no and it is like your task or like it's on it's it's to overcome the no to get to a yes and that's like how sexual behavior happens
3: few months we've all discovered who's behind workplace harassment and it's literally thousands of men jinkies and they would have gotten away with it too oh most of them did so now that we're finally listening to women some people are asking an important question should we stop listening to women
4: has me too become a war on people who
3: don't
1: deserve To be hurt by it.
5: Legendary actress Catherine Deneuve is denouncing the Me Too campaign. Let's not turn women
1: into uh,
5: snowflakes, let's not infantilize women.
6: There is a bit of a witch hunt happening.
3: You really want to go there, Liam Neeson? Your most successful movies are literally all about women calling you to say they have a problem and you believing them. When your daughter called to tell you she was taken, you weren't like, whoa, 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 are you sure you weren't asking to be taken? Let's not ruin an innocent taker's life. Yes, the inevitable backlash to the Me Too movement has arrived, or as I like to call it, the You Too Loud movement. So I'd like to take a look at one focus of the backlash, the so-called shitty media men list. In case you don't know, the shitty media men list was just that, an anonymously crowdsourced list of men in media who women said did shitty things, ranging from sending unsolicited dick pics to claiming credit for women's work to rape. It was never intended for public consumption. If it had been, it would have had a punchier name, like, this sassy koala video is amazeballs. (laughs) And in fact, its creator took it down after just 12 hours because so many people were sharing it. It was the Scaramucci of lists. The list was essentially like a green book for women, only instead of telling black travelers which establishments were friendly, the list told women which men might be hostile, gropey, grabby, pinchy, pervy, plagiarizing, and rapey, a.k.a. the Weinstein Company version of the Seven Dwarves.
7: (laughs) The
3: list also let women know that they weren't alone. You know, the whole Me Too component. People were so obsessed with this list that existed for 12 hours that Harper's Magazine planned an expose about it three months later. Women tried to protect the creator of the list from being doxed by Spartacusing all over Twitter. Would you look at that? A good example of people taking credit for a woman's work. You know, all women have done throughout the four months of the Me Too movement is Try to protect other women, but you know what? who is going to protect the men?
6: When we were conflating and putting these things all in one bucket, we're gonna start hurting your fathers, your brothers, your sons. Uh, Your grandfather, young people, will not take the risk Mm -hmm. of actually talking to to, uh, another person, asking them out for a date. So it'll just be robots. It'll be. Well, I hope it'll be robots (laughs) because robots are more attractive.
3: Upon hearing that, robots everywhere downloaded a not tonight I have a headache feature. (laughs) By the way, here's the number of people who were putting rape and harassment and bad dates in one bucket. Nobody. (laughs) Literally nobody is saying they're the same. The list wasn't called rapists and other people whose 100% verified crimes I consider to be equal to rape. What many fail to understand is that it doesn't have to be rape to ruin your life, and it doesn't have to ruin your life to be worth speaking out about. Any kind of sexual harassment or coercion is unacceptable. So what the fuck are women supposed to do to protect ourselves? If we go public with a story, we're petty crybabies hell-bent on destroying men's careers. If we write a secret list to protect each other, we're gossipy shrews telling lies in the shadows. What men literally cannot understand is, this isn't about them. Whoa! This isn't about men. That is unbelievable. The shit media men list wasn't Aria Stark's fucking hit list. No one is getting their face worn by a teenager, although I'm sure that is some sick fucks fantasy. Unfortunately, though, not all the backlash is from willfully blind men. Some of it is from women who have seen way too much, especially in the wake of an article about Aziz Ansari and the horrible night an anonymous woman said she had with him. The conversation about this article has been tentative and difficult, largely because a lot of women disagree about it and women actually like to be careful with each other's feelings except perhaps ashley banfield
8: let's take a moment to reflect on what you claim was the worst night of your life and quote you had a bad date is that what victimized you to the point of seeking a public conviction and a career-ending sentence against him you had an unpleasant date and you did not leave that is on you
3: It's harder than you think to leave when you're uncomfortable or scared. For example, you're scaring the shit out of me right now, Ashley Bamfield, and I can't leave. And it's not just Ashley. A lot of people are worried about Aziz's career, which no one is trying to end. Because again, we know the difference between a rapist, a workplace harasser, and an Aziz Ansari. That doesn't mean we have to be happy about any of them. People like me had to wade through a sea of prehensile dicks to build the world we now enjoy. enjoying that world is setting a higher standard for sex than just not rape. And women get to talk about it if men don't live up to those standards, especially if that man wrote a book about how to sex good. And if that seems harsh, I'm sorry. In fact, you know what? I'm sorry for a lot of things. I'm sorry that anyone ever thought the contents of that list or any of the other ways we protect ourselves from men were your goddamn business. I'm sorry you thought you got to choose what experiences we can share or how we react to the shitty ways we've been treated. And to men specifically, I'm sorry our request to be respected makes office culture a little less fun and flirty. And I'm sorry we tattled about that stuff you did on us, even when it was totally not rape. But listen, if you don't want to tune into your partner's feelings throughout sex, maybe you shouldn't be fucking a person at all. May I suggest a coin purse or a Ziploc bag full of grape jelly? <laughs> men. If you say you're a feminist, then fuck like a feminist. And if you don't want to do that, take off your fucking pin because we are not your accessory.
9: both outside and inside the Me Too movement reflects a long history of debate over what direction feminism should take. Back in 1994, the women's movement was drilling down on the workplace and issues of sex and sexuality. That January, now disgraced TV host Charlie Rose hosted a discussion about the new wave of pro-sexuality feminism that seemed to be taking hold. Here's Naomi Wolf. Who just published her book, Fire with Fire, the new female power and how to use it.
10: All the things that used to be okay for men to do are now not so okay. These are things that many men grew up thinking was a normal way to behave. Things like sexual assault, which used to be part of the dating process, not questioned, are now being questioned, and
8: crisis, a sense of privilege being lost, a lost empire.
9: Another cultural shift was afoot, another evolution in the women's movement. 24-year-old Rebecca Walker was also at that table. Two years earlier, she'd written an article in Ms. Magazine called Becoming the Third Wave, which gave rise to the term and movement known as third-wave feminism. I asked her how much the debate had changed since she was at that roundtable
11: in some ways i don't think it's changed that much you know when you hear naomi talking about the importance of really interrogating the ways in which boys are raised to think that they are entitled to transgress boundaries that women are asserting and and i think we we were all we've all been talking about the the need to revision masculinity and to have these conversations with men for men to have them themselves you know really trying to understand what it means to be a human being with, with 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 empathy with a kind of sophisticated nuanced understanding of of sex and sexuality and being engaged with another human being in a way that's not coercive that's not damaging that's not punitive that's not unhealthy um women's empowerment and women's sexual pleasure are synonymous and that part of what we need to be doing is claiming our sexual agency. And I think that's something that's coming up right now in these more nuanced discussions, certainly this discussion about the Aziz Ansari situation. How can we make sure that women are acting with a sense of clarity and purpose and understanding of of how to set appropriate boundaries of what sexual pleasure feels like and how to get it, of the importance of having communication and conversation about intimacy, that's what we were talking about then, and that's what we're talking about now. HLN
9: host Ashley Banfield said that the expanding of the Me Too movement to include this grayer area of male-female dynamics undermines the movement.
8: You have chiseled away at a movement that I, along with all of my sisters in the workplace, have been dreaming of for decades. A movement that has finally changed an oversexed professional environment that I, too, have struggled through at times over the last 30 years in broadcasting.
11: If, in fact, the discussion becomes so hyper-focused on, say, microaggressions and all of a sudden, we are not criminalizing rapists. All of a sudden, we are not calling out men who are deeply engaged in sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. If all of that is somehow silenced and erased, and all we're doing is talking about this other thing, then we could have a conversation <laughs> about the dilution of the movement. The gray areas are where bad behaviors are learned, codified, because they aren't examined closely. I think that the gray area here is where this disease festers.
9: There has been another reaction mm. to the uh, Aziz Ansari <laughs> situation, and this also echoed concerns from the 90s about infantilizing or revictimizing women. It's something that I am getting schooled on. But here was Katie Royfe back at that round table.
10: I do think that we have to be careful when we teach people about issues like rape and sexual harassment, that what we aren't doing is teaching women about their vulnerability and teaching men that they are aggressive and teaching women not to form an identity, especially a sexual identity, around the idea of being victimized. (laughs)
11: <laughs> I think I remember staying out of it a little bit of that because it was just so absurd. I mean, the idea that by talking about the dynamics of being victimized, of people being predators, that somehow you're going to create an identity around that, to me, is absurd. When you begin to identify the ways in which you've been oppressed, in which some people are oppressors and how they operate, what usually happens is people stop feeling like victims and they start feeling like survivors. There's nothing wrong with them personally. This is part of a systemic approach to controlling and manipulating the kinds of bodies that they happen to occupy.
9: Earlier, you mentioned that part of the discussion we need to be having now isn't just about the entitled behavior of someone like Ansari. You also talked about Grace's agency and how she needed to think about using it.
11: We all don't feel the same level of agency Mm -hmm. and that often the the agency that we do feel is a result of of our privilege and that Mm -hmm. privilege is sometimes not about race or class, but just about having taken a class and understanding different ideas or about having a woman in your family who told you stories about, you know, how to feel good about yourself or how to say no. I mean... Or being 22. Exactly. And so I think there should be room in this conversation to acknowledge that what we hope is that every grace does begin to have the tools to articulate what she feels comfortable with and what she doesn't in any given moment. But she clearly didn't have that at that moment. And our job is not to say, oh, hey, you should have just gotten out of there. Mm -hmm. Our job is to say, imagine all of the young women who don't have the sense of agency, and how can we make sure that they do in the future? And that's why I love this conversation. So
9: talking about this is the opposite of infantilizing. It's empowering.
11: Absolutely. If that person is dismissed as a weak child, that is infantilizing. If she is heard as someone who is struggling to figure out how to do it better, and we respond with helpful language and support, then, you know, we are not silencing her in the way she would be silenced in that encounter. We are actually contributing to her conversation and growth. That's what feminism should be. We're bringing voice. We're not shutting people down.
9: You've said that you're happy and that you're delighted. And is that because it's so much easier to have conversations like this now than it was back in the 90s?
11: Yes. You know, even though there is a quote-unquote backlash and people are criticizing her, the power of the Me Too movement, the dynamism of the multiple fronts of people who are speaking out against all kinds of microaggressions, macroaggressions, is much louder. We are dominating the space in a a way that was not happening in the 90s.
9: Charlie Rose couldn't
11: help you with that? (laughs) (laughs)
9: That was snotty. Sorry.
11: (laughs) No, but I mean, the irony is not lost that when we look at that clip, it's very meaningful that Charlie Rose has been exposed. And so he is no longer steering the discussion. He is The discussion. That was not happening then. And also what's so encouraging, you know, men who are saying, I did things that were inappropriate. I am sorry. I support the women coming forward. I find that meaningful. I know a lot of people feel like they can poo-poo that, but in my lifetime, men have been denying what they've done, minimizing it, This for Third Wave was a pillar that men are our allies when they come forward willing to acknowledge the ways in which they have been shaped and their expectations and their confusion and upset around the masculinity they've been asked to assume. When they come forward and support our voices and our experiences and are willing to engage them, they need to be respected and included and understood as as trying to be a part of a movement as opposed to just quickly demonized and sort of shunted aside. This system that we're currently living in is hard on all of us. It's hard on white men. It's hard on white women. It's deeply hard on all of us on the margins, and yet we have to understand that this system that's making white men into workaholics and people who have lost touch with empathy and with their own deep humanity, it's killing them too. So I think there's a much stronger sense of the need for all of us to get free. And I find that very, very encouraging.
0: important news, our two-in-one winter fundraiser ends in just a few days, and the cavalry seems to be arriving, but it looks like it may come down to the wire anyway. Uh, Donations have been coming in in just the last few days from this long list of people, Jarrett, Dwight P, Ann A, Randon S, Tyler W, Flair uh, S-B, Matthew M, Scott S, Carrie D, Alex M, Rainey B, Jack T, Stacy K, and Lauren D. So a, a nice uh, spike, but we still have a ways to go. Uh, you know, these campaigns make me nervous every time. People love to procrastinate until the last minute to get their donations in, uh, but I am hoping that the floodgates have begun to open. So here's how the math breaks down we need just 60 people to donate 50 bucks to the climate ride campaign for us to reach our goal it's totally easy completely doable we've done it before uh, and especially when it's for a good cause i I know we can make this happen so uh, for all you procrastinators out there Now is your time to shine. If you want to go all in on the fundraiser and become a member at the same time to receive free Best of Left apparel, then you're in for a treat on the members only bonus content as well. Uh, As promised, I did make a reference to Game of Thrones in the most recent bonus show. It was to help make a point about the importance of well planned urban development. Uh, You probably wouldn't have guessed that, but uh, it, it made more sense than you'd think. So now is the time to take action. Click on the huge winter fundraiser banner at the homepage of uh, bestofleft.com or use the convenient link right in the show notes for this episode to support the fundraiser to fight climate change and also to fund this show. Don't forget to get your donations in by the end of the month so we can wrap up this campaign on a big win and I can stop talking about it. Thanks again to all of those who have donated and thanks in advance to all who are about to.
10: The national conversation around sexual assault, sexual harassment has mostly centered around celebrities, some of, some of whom I, I just named up at the top. But sexual harassment in the workplace is harrowingly common. And actually, this is something the EEOC looked into in a recent report putting some numbers to this. According to the EEOC, between 25% and 85% of women report having experienced sexual harassment in the workplace.
8: But this is a huge range. Why don't we have a better handle on what that figure looks like? well, the national surveys actually just slight correction is twenty five percent to sixty percent okay although there are some studies that pick up that take higher. it up but but even twenty five percent to sixty percent is a huge range. one of the things we tried to figure out is what was in that range and it's very interesting when an employer and an academic sends out a survey to women and says, have you ever experienced sexual harassment over the course of your career? 25% of women, one out of four, say yes. But those surveys don't define sexual harassment. Mm. They just say, have you experienced sexual harassment? The better surveys send out a list of behaviors. Have you, over the course of your career, ever experienced any of these behaviors and the behaviors in this these surveys that have to do with sexual advances or sexual attention somebody touching you inappropriately someone asking you for dates continuously when women get that survey 40% of women say they have experienced those unwelcome behaviors so right there you see that women are experiencing behaviors that they don't call mm-hmm. sexual harassment Now, the one that's most accurate are the surveys that have not only those behaviors, but other unwelcome behaviors that are simply degrading to women, right? Use of pornography or simply that women don't belong in the workplace. That gives you 60% Mm -hmm. figure, over one out of two. So when you combine what the researchers call the come-ons and the put-downs, 60% of women experience sex-based harassment that is not okay in our country. I mean, I would agree
10: full stop, but we can't leave it there. We have to talk more about kind of where we go with this information. Um, it, one of the kind of pieces of this that, that also contributes, um, in my opinion, but also in the opinion of the EOC, to these uh, these kind of wide ranges, but also what are perhaps undercounting of what actually happens, is that a lot of women don't come forward. And that's because they're afraid of retaliation. You're Your report also looked at that and the rates of retaliation
8: following up a report of sexual harassment are staggeringly high. Yes, Um, I think it wasn't that much of a surprise to me and my colleague, uh, then Commissioner Victoria Lipnick. And we did this together that so many people don't file legal claims, although even there, the fact that only 15 percent, 15 percent ever walk through our doors at the EOC with a complaint even more sobering is that up to 70% of people never even complain internally, not to a manager, not to union, not to HR. They are silenced, and they're silenced because of fear, fear of retaliation, either professionally or socially, fear of not being believed, nothing happening. And that fear, unfortunately, is well justified, because the surveys show that people who do report often get retaliated against. So, Hey, you're a reasonable woman and you see what happened to some other woman who reported and it wasn't a good scene because she got retaliated against. You're not going to step forward when something happens to you.
10: Now, it's interesting because the there's been sort of a groundswell of research, of conversation around this set of issues in the wake of, of particularly the Harvey Weinstein um, allegations. And one of the uh, observations that, that some experts have made in this conversation is that when people do come forward, and particularly women, um, it, it's usually when others are also coming forward. There's sort of a um, – the tidal wave is not accidental – You see someone else come forward, you feel more comfortable. But does that sort of have two sides of the coin? You mentioned that how these claims get handled
8: has a huge effect on whether other people are going to come forward. Yes. You know, people have been asking me recently, do I feel this is a tipping point? Mm. And I say we need two tipping points. The first tipping point is breaking the silence is the coming forward. And I think we are beginning to see that because there is some sense of strength or safety in numbers. But the second tipping point has to be action. What are we going to do about this? And the key factor there is what are employers now doing when some women are feeling strong enough or let's be clear, angry enough mm-hmm to come forward because how employers react, how they respond in this moment, that's going to be the key to whether they can change the workplace culture in their organization.
5: of thousands of women took to the streets across the country Saturday to mark the first anniversary of last year's historic Women's March protesting President Trump's inauguration. In New York City, authorities estimated over 200,000 people marched. Protests were also held in Washington, Chicago, Los Angeles, and hundreds of other cities and towns. Here in Park City, Utah, protesters braved freezing temperatures and a snowstorm Saturday to take part in the Respect Rally. Speakers included the longtime women's rights attorney, Gloria Allred.
12: Snow, freezing rain to stand up. And why have we come here today? We have come here for respect, for women, for equal rights, for all of our daughters, for our mothers, our sisters, and our aunts. This entire year has been the winter of our discontent. But it has also been the year of our awakening and awake we are to the lack of respect and the denial of our rights for women. Do you agree? This marks the end of fear being used as a weapon to silence women and to deny our rights. Do you agree? This is the year That women's voices have been heard. The year when women broke our silence about the injustices we have suffered. And the year when we said to rich, powerful, famous men, you can break our hearts, but you cannot break our spirits. We will not be silenced. We have reached the breaking point. We have reached the tipping point. We demand respect for our daughters, our granddaughters, our mothers, our sisters, our lesbian sisters, gay men, transgenders, and all minorities. We demand our rights. We demand the right to be free of sexual assault, rape, and abuse. Say after me. Ripe. Resist. Resist. Insist. Persist. Elect. Now, resist. Resist. Persist. Persist. Insist. Insist. Elect. Elect. We demand the right to control our bodies and our lives. Resist. Resist. Insist. Insist. Persist. 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 Elect. Elect. We demand the right to choose. Legal. Safe and affordable abortions and not have our lives placed at risk by illegal, unsafe abortions which cause many of us to be mutilated and die like I almost died when Roe v. Wade was not yet the law and abortions were illegal. Resist! Resist. Insist! Insist. Persist! Persist. Elect. Elect! We demand the right to have contraceptives when men are getting Viagra. Resist, Resist. insist, insist. Persist. Persist. persist, elect. We demand the end of sexual harassment and all violence against women and girls. Resist, Resist. Persist. Persist. persist, insist, insist. elect, elect. We demand the enforcement of child support laws for mo- so mothers can support their children and not be forced onto welfare and lives of poverty. Resist. Resist. Insist. Insist. Persist. 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 Elect. We demand the end to pregnancy discrimination in the workplace. Resist. Resist. Insist. Insist. Persist. 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 Elect. Elect. And we demand the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, that equality of rights shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Resist. Resist. Persist. 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 Elect. Elect. And don't forget, insist. Insist. And let me tell you, Utah, we have 36 states who have ratified the equal rights amendment most recently Nevada and now it is time for Utah resist, resist. Insist. insist persist, persist. 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 Elect. elect and give a hearing to the ERA in Utah yes
6: let's hear it it is my huge honor here to be introducing the unintroducible the formidable Jane Fonda Being here in the cold and in the
5: snow, yay, Sundancers! We're still marching, we're still protesting, but now we have to also organize! Last September, 50 women took a bus from Los Angeles to San Diego to join hundreds of grassroots organizers who've been canvassing there to flip the 49th Congressional District. They went toward a door and talked to people, some of whom were ardent, avid Trump fans. The women didn't talk about a candidate. They never mentioned a Democratic or Republican party. They focused on issues. The issues that people at the door cared about, and by listening and giving people information that they had not heard before because, you know, Fox News, they were able to change minds. And just a few days ago, the Republican from that district, Trump's good pal, Dara Issa, retired. Yes. He was scared away by our organizing. Listen to this, the Tea Party with the Koch brothers learned what works. They learned from the successes of the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's and the LGBTQ movements, and they've been organizing under the radar for years, and that's how they've taken over state legislators and county supervisors and and governorships, and this is really important because governors determine redistricting. So if we want to protect our voting rights, we have to take back governorships. Our democracy's survival and the Earth's survival depends on our ability to get people the facts, help them understand who is really on their side, and they're not alone, and then get them registered and motivated to vote.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, raise women's voices by fighting voter suppression. As we just heard and will hear more about, voting rights and women's rights are inextricably linked. The gutting of the Voting Rights Act enabled vast voter disenfranchisement and restrictions that directly impacted the results of elections across the country, including, of course, the 2016 presidential election. State by state, we saw voter suppression laws pop up to disenfranchise the young, the old, the disabled, and minorities. And while Alabama was an example of what can happen when grassroots organizations work around the clock to overcome this injustice, that can't be the new status quo. We need to address the root of the problem. As long as voting restrictions are in place, women, especially women of color, and the critical issues impacting their lives and their families will be underrepresented. And as we know, when policies provide more choices for women and protect their rights, society as a whole reaps the rewards. So, with the midterms right around the corner, we have no time to lose. We need to start critiquing candidates and calling them out for their record on voting rights now. If you're not sure where to start, check out Let America Vote. Let America Vote was founded by former Missouri Secretary of State and recent congressional candidate Jason Kander. The organization aims to answer a simple question. What if politicians were actually held publicly accountable for supporting voter suppression? Through online and grassroots organizing, an aggressive earned media strategy, and advertising, Let America Vote wants to play a crucial role among the existing network of organizations fighting for voting rights. Head over to letamericavote.org to get involved by signing up for updates, volunteering to knock on doors, call or email legislators, write letters to the editor, host a voting rights house party, and more. While you're there, check out the interactive map of the U.S. that highlights each state's current and pending voter suppression laws and tactics. You can also follow the organization on Twitter at let underscore America vote. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if ensuring that women's voices are heard in every election is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Let America Vote via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
7: We're going to uh, wrap up our show with some of the speech. We don't have time for the entire speech by Kimberly Crenshaw, co-founder and executive director of the African-American Policy Forum and a law professor at UCLA and Columbia Law School, leading authority in the area of civil rights, black feminist legal theory, race, racism and the law. Um, and she is credited with uh, coining the term intersectionality that is becoming increasingly popular in academic circles, as well as with movement insiders. Let's hear what Kimberly Crenshaw had to say at the Women's March in Los Angeles. I'm going to go out on, on a limb here. I hope you let me do so. I have a, a, a hunch that there's some people who are watching us, some people who might be even um, in our crowd, who, who are worried. They're worried that with all this talk about racism and patriarchy and homophobia, xenophobia, transphobia, all of this difference is gonna make it harder for us to unite under one banner. They long for those good old days when we all march together, I don't know when that was, <laughs> under one banner. And to them, this is a tragedy. A lost opportunity, because we're all just talking about the isms. Well, I'm going to make that tragedy worse in this moment, because I'm a black woman, I'm going to talk about black women and I'm going to talk about intersectionality. So I'm going to tell you about what the real tragedy is. The real tragedy is how destructive it is when our movements march to one-stick drummers. We miss things, and when we miss things, it harms us. That's how we wound up with this diminished democracy in which the fundamental right to vote has been undermined. Did you know that the number of people who lost their right to vote was more than the margin that determined the outcome of the last presidential election? People like 100-year-old Grace Hardison of North Carolina, who had voted every year for 24 years, but was turned away when her name was purged from the polls. Now, we'd be wrong to think that this problem just started last year. No, it's much older than that. Let's think about the Supreme Court and that fifth vote that gutted the Voting Rights Act, the most cherished victory of the Civil Rights Movement. Let's think about that fifth vote that gutted campaign finance reform, turning elections into markets in which billionaires win. And let's remember, while we're thinking about this fifth vote, that one Supreme Court appointment that changed everything the man who was narrowly confirmed after a black woman named Anita Hill showed that he was not the man for the job. (laughs) If we had only listened, but we couldn't, we couldn't because we were divided between race and gender. Painfully, some folks, black folks, argued that harassment just wasn't something that black women cared about. Demonstrating a profound ignorance about the fact that it was black women who fought back, black women who made sexual harassment the law that it is, black women like Carmita Wood and Michelle Vincent and countless others who suffered abuse at work since we arrived on these shores. And too many of our feminist friends thought race had nothing to do with it. We were divided and we were conquered because the history that held our movements together for too long has been ignored. But today, let's imagine a different possibility. What if we had known about how Reese Taylor's tragedy became the linchpin for triumph? Reese was the black woman who was gang raped by several white men on her way home from church in 1944. But as Danny McGuire tells us, it's not what happened to her that changed history, but her refusal to be silent about it. Reese insisted on justice and, along with another courageous black woman, founded an organization that would become the backbone for the Montgomery bus boycott. And you all know that bus boycott changed the world. That woman who stood beside Reese Taylor, the one who refused to be silent, was the same woman who refused to go to the back of the bus 11 years later. Her name was Rosa Parks. See, see, quiet as it's kept. Parks didn't refuse to give up her seat because her feet were tired. She wasn't a quiet seamstress who merely stumbled into history. She was a social activist who cut her teeth by resisting the oppression of black women. She spoke the truth when too many white sisters averted their eyes and too many black ones held them in shame. That truth grounds the social revolt that we inherit today. So this moment is part of Rosa Parks' legacy. Reese Taylors, and Ida B. Wells, and Pauli Murray, and Flo Kennedy, and Aline Hernandez, and Shirley Chisholm, and so many others who refuse to allow themselves to be divided and conquered so we don't have to. We can wake the sleeping giant that is us and take back our future. We will know we're on the right path when we are as outraged about sexual abuse in prisons and patrol cars as we are when it happens in Hollywood and in colleges know we're on the right track when we mourn the loss of Ayanna Stanley Jones as well as Tamir Rice, when we can save the name of India Kager and Kayla Moore and Michelle Cusso in the same breath as Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Philando Castillo. And if we reach this goal, future generations will look back on us as the ones when faced with growing hatred, obscene inequality, and human extinction, wove a tapestry of resistance out of our difference, lifting up forgotten legacies to take back our future. And it's happening. It's beginning in Alabama and in Virginia. It's gonna happen in California and Nevada and across this country. When we take leadership from the margins Things change. So, as we go forward into 2018, let's honor Reese Taylor and Rosa Parks and the nameless sheroes on whose shoulders we stand. Find your inner black woman and vote! Vote!
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Backtalk, giving a quick rundown of the Aziz Ansari story and an explanation of the nuances of it. Samantha B. explained the completely predictable Me Too backlash. On the Media looked to learn some lessons about the empowering benefits of understanding victimization and power dynamics. Off-kilter highlighted the prevalence of harassment in the workplace that exists, even when many fail to recognize it as the abuse that it is. Democracy Now! played a couple of selections of speeches highlighting the year of awakening at last weekend's Women's March. Our activism for today is in support of Let America Vote. And finally, we just heard a selection of Kimberly Crenshaw's Women's March speech that was played on Sojourner Truth Radio, tying all the threads together. As always, you can find links to of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing and now we'll hear from you
4: Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your member from Connecticut, calling in in the middle of New York City's Women's March, as you can hear. Um, quite different than last year's march in um, D.C. The streets are much more narrow, and so it's much harder to get a size of the crowds that are here, but there's still as much passion um, for change and, and diversity. Um, one or two Trump supporters out here and... and not you know (laughs) certainly the minority and and certainly being treated with respect so anyway i'll 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 call in later and stay awesome guys hey jay it's alan your member from connecticut calling in um just to kind of a little bit to recap and compare and contrast a little bit this year's new york city's uh march to last year's dc's march um there were some things that I noticed that kind of stood out despite the size difference I mentioned before. And, um, you know, there was certainly a lot less pink hats and uh, memorabilia being spread around. Uh, last year in D.C., Planned Parenthood had a big table and was handing out T-shirts and, and hats to people. Um, and there was a lot less of that or at least a lot less pink visible regardless and certainly, that I think that a lot of the signs and the, and the theme, if you will, of, of this was uh, making changes in the election. Um, and I think a lot of it was targeted towards 2020, although like, I kept reminding people we don't have to wait that long, that you know, 2018 right now is a, is a time that we can start making changes. And the other difference, I think, significant between geographically New York and uh, D.C. was New York ended in Times Square and there was, you know, kind of dispersed in with um, visitors and um, so forth, whereas in D.C. you end up in the uh, lawn there with the view of the White House and then people kind of gathered and had conversations and so forth, whereas what I saw kind of in New York was people just kind of went their own way, like, okay, yeah, I marched now, I'm going to go get a hot dog somewhere. So it, it it definitely had a different feel to it. Um, not that it was, you know, not important to do and not important to be represented and out there. Um, just somewhat different. Love to hear what other people from other cities uh, felt and observed and especially any differences between last year and this year. But then I think we need to move forward to 2018 elections and encourage people to focus now not waiting till november but now on who's running what do they stand for and supporting the best candidate for the position thanks and uh, as always stay awesome
6: hi Jay, it's aaron from philly i wanted to call and leave a message uh in regards to the main show, which you said you haven't been getting as many of lately, uh, and specifically on the recent episode about gerrymandering, with a little good news for once. While I, I know at least one of the segments of the show talked about Pennsylvania districts and uh, you know the famous goofy kicking Donald Duck district, which is uh, close to where I live in Philly here, and... While a federal challenge to Pennsylvania's districts is on hold in the Third Circuit pending the outcome of the big Supreme Court case uh, that was also discussed, we just had a victory yesterday, this would be Monday, January 21st, that's probably the wrong date, I'm terrible at that, close enough, in which the current congressional district map was thrown out by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on Commonwealth Constitution grounds, so state law grounds, uh, as is the case in many states. The Pennsylvania Constitution protects voting rights better than the U.S. Constitution, and the arguments under the Pennsylvania Constitution was accepted in a 4-3 decision. So, uh, And not only that, but the order from the court was that the districts have to be redrawn in time for our primary elections that are coming up in May of this year, before the uh, congressional gen- general election in November, so it won't affect the special election that people might have been hearing about in the 18th district of Pennsylvania, out in the southwest corner of the state. But it will matter for the primary for the election that will be held to, you know, put a permanent resident in that congressional seat come November. So really good news and you know for people who live in states that have a strong state constitution you know if there's not already a a state law-based challenge to your districting going on that's an avenue that uh, people might be interested in pursuing so some rare good news hope to hear more as the year carries on and thanks for all the work you do stay awesome
13: Hey Jay, this is Annie from Alabama. Um, I'm calling in about your episode on gerrymandering. I don't know whether it's me just being a bit of a pessimist or um, whether this is something that we should actually be concerned about, but even though I really like the idea of that um, fair voting uh, bill in Congress, I don't think anything like that would ever pass. I'm a Democrat in an extreme, in a scarlet red state. And I would love something like that so that I felt that my votes weren't being just thrown in the trash can. But we all know that quite a few of the people sitting in Congress are only there because of gerrymandering, and they know it too. So why would they ever, ever vote? for something that hurts their careers, that hurts their prospects of maintaining their seats. I do not understand why why anyone would vote away their power. And, you know, okay, let's say we don't want to do it through Congress. We want to, like, the executive branch can't do it because the next president can just wipe it away like we see Trump doing with all of Obama's stuff. And the judiciary's not going to do it because there's no specific laws against gerrymandering uh, except racial gerrymandering. And we've had hard enough time even enforcing that within the judicial system. I don't understand how you would do this except with a, with a um, two-thirds state uh, constitutional amendment. And that just seems completely unreal Logistically, I don't see how we could ever get the force behind that. I don't know if I'm just being overly pessimistic or or what, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks, Jay.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, a quick response to Annie from Alabama and her pessimism about the future of gerrymandering or, or the potential to undo gerrymandering with some legislation, I see your perspective as completely understandable. But here's where I come down on the question of pessimism versus optimism. And and I'm really just stealing a a philosophy from someone else. Uh, This quote passed my consciousness recently, and it's the best thing I've ever heard on on the issue of uh, optimism versus the alternative. And the quote is, I am an optimist. Because I don't see the point in being anything else. And that, that's that been floating around my head for a little while. I had to look it up today to know who said it. Turns out it was Abraham Lincoln. Pretty good. I gotta say, that guy's a, a bit of a mixed bag, uh, which I mean in the best possible way. Uh, you know, to, to call someone from the 1800s a mixed bag, I, I think, is a huge compliment because... I think the majority were uh, hardly mixed at all, but that quote for sure I think uh, falls in the unambiguously good column for uh, for old Abe. And and just one other note sort of on nuts and bolts, don't forget that senators voted to make themselves run for elections rather than in the old way they used to just be appointed, but they voted agreeing yes, we should have to run for elections. And they did that because they felt enough pressure from the people coming up from below. So there's no reason to think that this may not be the very same thing, uh, just in in a different form. I mean, when people understand how gerrymandering works and the effect it has on democracy, they fucking hate it. And so you combine that with the impacts of money in politics, and you know that people have been getting pissed off about that ever since Citizens United. That it hit this inflection point where more and more people were becoming aware and getting super pissed. So if you roll these uh, these types of issues together, you could have a serious political force on your hands. So I think it is not too pessimistic. Uh, just because pessimism is useless, but also it's probably too pessimistic because there's good reason to have optimism that we can actually make change because we've done more with less in the past. And then I just have one last thing I want to talk about today, completely unrelated to to what I was just discussing, but today's episode got me thinking about uh, something that uh, that I came, I, this might be a, 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 Jay Tomlinson original. When listening to all of the talk about feminism and progressivism and these, you know, the Me Too movement and the women's movement and all of this, one of the things that, that's been, uh, sort of bubbling up to the surface recently is call out culture. It didn't get talked about in today's episode, but it's on my mind and it's close enough. So I wanted to talk about that, uh, cause I, I think I have some good advice about this. And the essence of call-out culture is, is basically the idea that when people are not progressive enough, they don't have just the right opinions on this or that, people yell at them for it, essentially. Call them out for you know not being uh, as good of an ally as they could be, or as good of a progressive as they could be, or whatever. And the essence of this is that that is structurally a bad thing to do, not just because it's, like, immoral or mean or whatever, but it doesn't work. It doesn't help your cause. And so for all of these reasons, uh, what I wanted to say is my piece of advice uh, for anyone who finds themselves dealing with literally anyone else who doesn't share your own views verbatim. I had this thought. You know how we talk about people being three-dimensional like, oh, you know, you, you just know like a tiny bit about a person, but if you get to know them, you realize they're a three-dimensional person. They're complex and complicated, and isn't that interesting? They're three dimensions. They're not just that two-dimensional caricature that you thought they were, and people think of that as, a re- uh, you know, a bit of a revelation, and I think that that itself is even wrong. It doesn't go far enough. People are not three-dimensional. They are four-dimensional People are not only complex and varied, but they also change over time. So what you need to keep in mind when you meet or talk with anyone who you think needs to change their mind about something, rather than yelling at them or you know being angry and uh, berating them or calling them out, remember that everyone is on a journey. You did not feel the way you feel and you did not think the way you think, Five years ago, you're different now and everyone you meet is different now than they used to be and they will be different in the future than they are now. So just keep in mind that uh, we are all here to help each other along, uh, spread information and ideas and thoughtful comments and all of that to help people along and, and progress as they go. So there you go. You're free to use that uh, just with a a Creative Commons attribution license. Jay Tomlinson Original. Uh, People are four-dimensional. Have fun. Now, keep the comments coming in. As always, the number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show and who are coming to the rescue right at uh, at the critical moment in our winter fundraiser. Keep those donations coming in, and we will hit our goal. I have no doubt of it. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.